Today I'm preaching from Matthew chapter 18, the first four verses. I will get back to Moses come September, but uh, anyway, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. He said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus, as usual, Jesus' disciples, as usual, were arguing. And they were arguing about one of their favorite themes. Who gets to be top dog Jesus when you bring your kingdom? Who gets to sit by your right hand and your left hand? Who's number one? And the scripture says Jesus called a little child to himself as a model of what he wanted. And he said, unless you become like this little child, you will never understand the kingdom of heaven, much less be top dog in it. Whoever is the least among you, whoever humbles himself like this child, that person will be greatest in my kingdom. There's the answer to your question. In other words, the greatest person in my kingdom, Jesus said, is the person who doesn't want to be the greatest in my kingdom, but who wants to be the servant of all. The greatest is the humblest, the most childlike. Childlike humility and faith are the keys to the kingdom. They are the keys to unleashing grace, the keys to spiritual growth, the keys to freedom, the keys to a relationship with God, ourselves, and others. You must become like one of these. Too often we lose ourselves, our childlikeness. Our, we lose touch with, with what it is like to be a child. I remember the story of a young businessman who was deeply successful but deeply troubled. And he blurted out to a pastor one day, I'm miserable. There's something missing in my life. I have everything I ever dreamed of having. I have money. I'm successful at my work. I'm respected in the community. But I'm empty. I am edgy all the time. I'm irritable. My marriage is on the rocks. And I don't enjoy my kids. I feel tense all the time. Then he paused for a moment and looked at the floor and continued, I know what my problem is. I have lost what I had when I was a kid. Over the years, I've become so sophisticated, so businesslike, so cold and calculating. I never relax. I never let my hair down. I never have fun anymore. I'm too busy playing the success game, polishing my image. I have become cynical and skeptical. I don't trust anyone anymore. I've given so much of myself for so long to being tough-minded and aggressive and success at any cost. I have lost the little boy I used to be. There is no little boy left in me anymore. Maybe some of you identify with that. Maybe some of you don't know how to relax anymore or really have fun. Fun feels like you're wasting your time. Or laughing and being silly feels like that's not being serious enough. There's all kind, or you're just tense and edgy or you feel like you have to produce all the time. Welcome to losing your inner child. We live in a culture that prides itself on cynicism and how sophisticated it is. 
Our higher education system teaches people to be critical, but not participatory. It teaches us to analyze, but not celebrate. When's the last time you had a class on celebration? It teaches us to dissect things intellectually rather than digest things and make them a part of us. Jesus said to enter the kingdom, a person must become a person who has needs and knows they have needs. A person who questions instead of having all the answers. A person who owns that they need something bigger than themselves in order to survive. And we need to become like a child. Because the hallmark of childlikeness is that every child depends on someone older, bigger, and smarter to take care of them. The essence of childlikeness is a dependency based on a trust. Young children, by the way, your young children utterly trust you. And they are utterly dependent on you. And guess what? They're just fine with that. It doesn't bother them that they are utterly dependent on you. Jesus wants the same deal between us and him. That's why he said we must become like little children in order to receive the benefits of the kingdom. Children don't bring power or sophistication to relationships. They come empty-handed. They come without pride. They just bring the one thing you must bring. They trust with childlike trust. They open their hearts just as they are, and they receive without question the love that is offered to them. By the way, that's the reason the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the children loved Jesus so much. You know why? Because they brought a certain humility with them. They knew they needed something more than themselves. They knew they lacked something that they could not provide. And people like that are always drawn to Jesus. They were teachable. They were open to truth. They knew they needed help. They came with empty hands. In contrast, the Pharisees needed nothing from Jesus. And because of their arrogance and their inflexibility and their closed-mindedness, they missed God incarnate right in front of their noses. In fact, they killed God incarnate right in front of their noses. We moderns in North America have our own arrogances, don't we? We think we deserve the best. We think we are in control of our destinies. And if you don't believe me, watch every car commercial ever made. We have taken self-esteem and gone crazy with it. I remember this, this article about a man who knocked the head off a statue of Margaret Thatcher to protest global capitalism. And he admitted he did it, but he pleaded himself innocent, even though he admitted he did it. How do you do that? How do you say, I vandalized this statue, but I'm innocent? I'll tell you how. He said, I'm unable to enter a plea of guilty due to the fact that whacking the head off a statue is a criminal act, and I'm not a criminal. My friends... You can't argue with that. That's better than an insanity defense. In fact, that is an insanity defense. That's like me going, well, I killed someone, but I'm a good person at heart, so you can't charge me with a crime. Because, you see, I'm good. I'm good no matter what I do. This brings into focus the wars the intellectual philosophical wars that are going on in Western civilization. 
There are two great basic philosophies going, that are battling each other. One is humanism. It states that human beings are innately good, that the evil in us is because of circumstances or structures or poverty or bad parenting, and that evil is installed or imposed from without the other philosophies, Christianity. It says we are sinners by nature. The environment doesn't make us bad. We make the environment bad. Now, that doesn't mean that once systems get going, they kind of run on automatic. There is systemic evil. But that systemic evil came from somewhere. The source of evil in the world is Satan and the human heart that is partnering with him. I saw these two philosophies in stark contrast when I talked to a secular psychologist the other day. We were discussing marriage counseling. And he told me that in marriage counseling, there is no such thing as truth. I, that got my attention. He said, you know, that, that, that two spouses can have entirely different stories, and they're both true, even if they contradict each other. Because what is true for you is your truth whether anybody else agrees with it or not, or whether it lines up with the fact. Your truth is your truth. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for you is true for you. So, you know, and he said, then I said, well, then how in the world do you do marriage counseling? And he says, the goal is to move past these apparent contradictions and get the couple to work on meeting each other's needs no matter what the truth is. In other words, just kind of bypass the truth. But the question I had is, what if the truth of one of these people in marriage counseling is not just different? What if it's way, way off? What if it's destructively off? What if one of the people you're doing marriage counseling with is a sociopath without a conscience? Or has an antisocial personality disorder? Or is a narcissist who thinks they're right about everything and everybody else is wrong? Or what if the person says... You know, my reality for me, you know, I'm physically abusive to my spouse, but my truth is they deserve it. Or I'm, I'm committing adultery, but the truth is I don't believe in monogamy even if my spouse does. What do you do with that? What do you say to the alcoholic who may be in marriage counseling who says, it doesn't matter what my wife or my kids or my parents or my boss say. If you don't think you're an alcoholic, then you're not. Whatever is true for you is true for you. If you don't think you're a cocaine addict, then it doesn't matter because everybody's truth is different. At that point, isn't the therapist reinforcing exactly what shouldn't be reinforced? Isn't that therapist dooming his clients by refusing to tell them the truth the same way a doctor dooms his patients when he refuses to tell a diabetic they have diabetes? What if the therapist said, what, what, if what this therapist says is true, then by the way, there's no use having a judicial system or laws or a constitution. Such thinking invalidates Christianity itself, which insists that human beings have a sin nature 
and that the ultimate way to free ourselves is to acknowledge the truth about ourselves and our dark sides and grab hold of God's grace and forgiveness and depend on the Holy Spirit for change and healing, this New Age gobbledygook says we are all innately good, truth is entirely relative in whatever we perceive it to be, and self-esteem is almost the ultimate end in itself. It is a philosophy that dooms humanity and its lostness because we're going to get saved from what? We're all good. It causes relationships and people to stay locked in self-destructive narcissistic patterns of behavior that hurts them and others because what's true for you is, doesn't have to be true for me. Because after all, we don't need to confront this ugly stuff in us. If it hurts our feelings or damages our self-esteem, we're innately good. The main goal here, folks, is to feel good, not be good. This is nuts. This is self-esteem gone crazy. It is sheer arrogance. And you go to any secular university, and in the liberal arts department, this is the philosophy that is running ragged over everything. It is the philosophical bedrock of much sociology and psychology that's out there now. The truth is, is that there is none born good, no, not one. The truth is we are all sinners who need to be saved by grace. The truth is we are not in control no matter how hard we try. And the truth is God can't help us and save us and heal us until we come clean and acknowledge our need for Him. You can't get saved if you don't have a problem. The fact is we need a Savior because none of us is capable of saving ourselves no matter how much pop psychology or positive thinking we use. And the only way God can save us is if we become like a little child and humble ourselves and let Him into our lives moment by moment, day by day. Because the first step of salvation is the shattering of human pride and the shattering of self-sufficiency. And if we become like little children and humble ourselves, we will discover a freedom we have never known before the Bible teaches us. We will discover the freedom to come to God just as we are, without one plea, without pretense. The freedom to be real with God and ourselves and those around us. The freedom to be loved for who and what we really are. You see, when does God's Spirit and God's grace really change us? When who we really are meets God face to face. One of my favorite stories, and I've probably shared it three or four times in 36 years here, but it's such a good story. And when I find one of these babies, I write them to the end. But it's a story of a man named Stipolkowski who was a fighter in the Polish underground resistance movement from 1939 to 1944 in World War II against the Nazis. Unfortunately, when the war ended, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was captured by the communists, by the Russian army. He and 15 other Poles were taken to Russia to stand trial for their war crimes of fighting the Nazis. Since some Western observers were at the trials, it was necessary to get full confessions from these men in order to convict them of their supposed treason against the Russian state. 
Actually, they had helped defeat the Nazis with their tactics. Now they were being accused of helping the Nazis. Prior to the trial, the men were put under rigorous interrogation to break them mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, to destroy their wills and their integrity so that they would confess to anything demanded of them. Fifteen of the sixteen men broke, thoroughly broke, and confessed to everything the communists wanted them to because of the pressure. Only Stiepelkowski didn't. And this was in spite of the fact that for 69 out of 70 nights, he was brutally interrogated. It numbered 141 interrogations. They tortured him. They came at him every way they could. And not only did he endure these interrogations, but at one point, his Russian interrogator broke, had a nervous breakdown, and had to be replaced... Over and over again, his tormentors relentlessly examined everything he'd ever done or hadn't done, examined it for its fear and guilt content to break him. They came at him about his work, his marriage, his family, his children, his sex life, his church, his community life, even his concept of God. The following weeks, they put him on a starvation diet. They would not let him sleep at night. They used sleep deprivation and they tortured him physically. And most insidious of all that they did to him was they went around to his friends and got signed confessions from his best friends, all of whom said he is a person of terrible character, and he did all these things you're accusing him of. His torturers told him his case was hopeless and as good as closed. They advised him to plead guilty so they could lessen his sentence. Otherwise, they said, we are going to execute you. You will be dead. But Stiepelkowski refused. He said he had not been a traitor and would not confess to something which was not true. He went on to plead not guilty at his trial. And largely because of foreign observers there, he was freed. Most impressive was the completely natural and unselfconscious way he witnessed about his Christian faith. He kept that faith alive by regular prayer. He prayed his way through this. And every other loyalty was subordinated to his loyalty to Christ. However, lest you think Stiepelkowski was perfect, he was far from being perfect. He had weaknesses like any human being. Weaknesses his accusers pointed out to him time after time. But he was never shattered by his weaknesses. The reason for his endurance was that he daily presented himself to God and his accusers in absolute honesty. He knew he was accepted, loved of God, forgiven, and cleansed. So whenever they accused him of something wrong, he freely admitted it. He even welcomed it. Again and again, he humbly said, I never felt it was necessary to justify myself with excuses. When they showed me I was a coward sometimes, I already knew it. And confessed it when they showed me that you know that sometimes I had filthy lewd feelings I already knew that too and confessed it when they reflected showed me a reflection of myself with all my inadequacies Stiepelkowski said but gentlemen I am much worse than what you've come up with for you see I had learned it was unnecessary for me to justify myself 
One had already done that for me. Jesus Christ had justified me. And so he didn't have to pretend to be better than what he was because he knew he was saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. Because Stipolkowski could be totally honest about himself before God, he was able to be totally honest about himself before his accusers. He could freely admit his personal failures because he knew all the things that were wrong with him had been taken care of by the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they could not break him. And it's true with all of us. When we realize that we are justified by faith, not our own perfection, and that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not our moral perfection, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand, Romans 5.1, we can face the truth about ourselves. If you live by grace, you can face the truth about yourself. You can bring your brokenness and experience healing. My friends, the world and the devil cannot break a person who is already broken. You can't condemn a person who knows they were already condemned until Christ came into their lives. You can't shatter the ego of a person who's already had that ego shattered by the truth of the gospel and knows that without grace they are utterly lost. That is freedom. Didn't Jesus say, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free? That's when real healing and transformation begins. Childlike humility and trust unleash God's grace. And grace gives us the freedom to face our real needs, our real wounds, and experience healing. As Scott Peck has said in his classic book, The Road Less Traveled, all real emotional illnesses come from our inability to face our real problems and feel the pain, the shame, and the fear they cause. It's not that you mess up. That's not what gets you. It's not that you sin. For where there is sin, grace abounds more. It's not all the... What gets us is the lies. What gets us is the secrecy. What gets us is pretending to be better than what we are. What gets us is not when we run to grace, but when we run from grace. It takes humility to be whole. Did you hear that? I'll say it again. It takes humility to be whole. It takes childlikeness to be free. Carlo Coretto, who was a great Christian writer, Catholic, was moving up the ecclesiastical ladder in the Catholic Church with all the power and prestige that entailed. There's no telling how high, high he could have gone. Maybe he could have been Pope. But at the age of 44, he was summoned by God to the desert. He left for left Italy for North Africa where he joined the, 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 the monastery of the Little Brothers for a life of contemplation and prayer. And in his book, Letters from the Desert, Coretto shares some of what he learned from God after years of living in contemplation in the desert. After a significant experience with God, he wrote, My first feeling after this was one of freedom. New, vast, real, joyful freedom. 
the discovery that I was not perfect and I was inadequate in every way and that I could fix no one, that I was a man of no importance, gave me the joy of a boy on holiday. He didn't have to pretend anymore. He could come just as he was and know that the grace of God could envelop that. He said, for so many years, for too many years, I have fought against my own powerlessness. I have fought against my own weakness. Often I have refused to admit it to myself, preferring to appear in public with a nice mask of self-assurance. It is pride which will not let us admit this powerlessness. Pride which won't let us accept being inadequate. God has made me understand this little by little. It is the death of such pride that has allowed God's grace to flood in. You must become as a little child. That's freedom. To be what you are and nothing more and less, nothing less than you are before God. That is freedom. To realize you're powerless to fix anyone, including yourself, and you run, makes you run to God with open arms. That is freedom. It's freedom not to worry about popularity or public image or fearing someone will discover who you really are under the mask. You don't have to worry about people taking off the mask if before Jesus you take off the mask. He discovered the freedom and joy of becoming a child because there is no one freer than a child in the hands of God bathing in God's grace. There's no one more free. When was the last time you felt cherished like a child in your father's arms? When was the last time you snuggled with God like a toddler? When was the last time you came clean and walked into God's presence just as you are and depended on His love and grace through faith? You must become like a child to enter the kingdom and to receive what God has for you. You must be humble in order to be healed. In a lodge in Minnesota, it's a rehab center, and in the main room of the lodge where they do a lot of group therapy, there is a plaque on the wall for everyone to see. And it says this, you can be right or you can be well, but you cannot be both. You can stay in denial or you can open yourself to the truth that sets you free. You can maintain your pride and insist on your way or you can experience the grace of God firsthand. You can protect your fragile ego and you can lie to yourself or you can open yourself up to the healing power of God. You can be right or you can be well. You get to choose. You get to choose. Grace is free. Grace is free. Jesus paid for it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But there is a price to be paid for grace. And the price on our part is honesty and humility. And often that is painful. It's painful. It's great when we say God can heal people of, of alcoholism or God can keep you clean one day at a time. But the, that's God's part. But your part is to go, I am an alcoholic. And that is painful. 
It's great to know that God's grace can forgive you and His grace can take away all bitterness. But first step is the painful step on your part, becoming like a child and becoming honest and being humble enough to say, but I'm bitter to begin with. Who likes saying they're bitter? Grace is free. The love of God is free. The salvation of God is free. But accessing it will cost you something. It will cost you coming clean. The hardest part of getting any cocaine addict healed is to get them to say they're a cocaine addict. We hate that. But only that truth will set them free. You see, God can't heal people who have no problems. God can't forgive sinners who have no sin. God can't look in your face if you have a mask on. God can't come into your life in fullness and reveal His heart and His love to you if you keep your heart hidden in some dark corner and will not let Him get at it. There is a price for grace. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But sometimes the truth shakes you real good. And sometimes the truth shatters your self-illusions. You have to become humble. You have to become like one of these little children. But when you become like a little child, all of heaven is opened up to you. And all of God's goodness is opened up to you. I conclude this sermon by simply saying this. God, help us to grow down. God, help us to grow down. Because too many of us have grown up the wrong way. You must become like one of these and lower yourselves like one of these children. And when you do, the resources of heaven are yours. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want our ushers to gather. I want the worship team to come forward. We are now going to partake of communion. Talking about growing down. Communion is about how Jesus left his throne, came down here, became one of us. Became our brokenness, became our sin, became, he, Jesus grew down so we could go up. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you're perfect, not that you're perfect, not that you're perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you are strong but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Anybody here qualify? Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do communion in the seats today. We ask that you hold the bread and the cup until we can all partake of it together to signify our unity in the faith and our unity in the journey of broken people together. Okay?
You do not have to be a member of this church or a member of the Brethren in Christ. We just ask that you love the Lord. Also, in the plates, if you are allergic to gluten, we have gluten-free bread in little plastic bags. You can partake of that. But before we do this, I want to take a moment. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to give to God what is on your heart today. The sin, the guilt, the shame, the pain, the fear. I want you to come clean with God right now. And in preparation for this communion, give to Him the thing that is interfering with your communion with Him this morning. Lord Jesus, forgive us our sins and take away the shame and the guilt so that we feel like we can come boldly into your presence. We give you our pain and our wounds, some of them self-inflicted. We open them up to you to be touched by your Spirit. Lord, some of us give you our bitterness today and our frustrations Help us to receive your grace despite our struggle with it, giving it to others so that we may give it to others now. Heal us, Jesus, and make us grateful. And Holy Spirit, give us full communion as we partake of the communion. Amen. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for growing down for the cause of love. Thank you, Lord, that you were the most humble person that ever walked this earth. You showed us how. And you showed us the freedom of doing the Father's will. Bless this communion. In your name we pray. Amen.
Let us read the responsive reading together. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. Bless the Lord. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave to his disciples. We do likewise. Pastor Linda will now pray over the cup. We thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We think of the crown of thorns on your head and the nail-pierced nail hands and feet and the, your side that was pierced. And in, for all these things, we thank you for your blood that shed for us, for our forgiveness, that though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We thank you, Jesus, today. Help us to remember your sacrifice as we partake of the cup. Amen.
let us read the responsive reading. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Bless the Lord for his goodness. passing the baskets around I'd like the intercessors to come forward please we will pray for you for anything and everything that you would like prayer for also um, uh, I guess is Randy leading this who's leading the last song here the Kellys okay would the Kellys hurry up with those baskets and get up front and uh <laughs> I, uh, again, as we close in worship, uh, would you stand? And uh, you may come to the altar for prayer for anything.
great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And I will see how great, how great is our God. How great is our God. How great is our God. Say with me, how great is our God. And I'll see how great, how great is our God. God is good. And all the time. Praise the Lord. Lord, bless us as we leave this place. Help us to believe enough in your grace that we can be not only honest, but brutally honest with ourselves so that we may be healed and forgiven, so that we may feel truly loved for the first time because we have held nothing back. Teach us to be as little children. Teach us to humble ourselves in your presence. Amen and amen.